you, John. Good morning, folks. Privileged to see you again. I don't know if you're aware of it or not, but among Bible-believing Christians, there are two different systems of theology or doctrine. Uh, One is dispensationalism, and the other one is covenant theology. And uh, we agree on a lot of things. We agree on who Jesus is, what he did for us on the cross and everything else, but we part company when it comes to future events from the Word of God, and also we part company on God's plan and purpose for the nation of Israel. And um, it's important for you to realize these things. And one of our books over here that's available is entitled There Really is a Difference. And we explain the differences between these two systems of, of theology or doctrine. We explain how they got started historically And then we give a biblical as well as historical defense for the dispensational premillennial understanding uh, of the Word of God. Closely related to that, those who hold a covenant theology say that because Israel rejected Jesus as their Messiah in his first coming, that uh, God has forever rejected Israel as his people. He has no present or future plan for the nation of Israel whatsoever, and that he's replaced Israel with the church. And so the church is now God's Israel. And uh, it's it's, uh, called replacement theology. The church has replaced the nation of Israel as the people of God. And that view started within 100 years after the apostles were off the world scene by some Gentile church leaders who were strongly anti-Semitic. And they began that view And whether you recognize it or not, you trace the history of that, that was one of the major things that contributed to the whole Roman Catholic system developing within organized Christendom. And they ended up, the Catholic Church saying, we are the kingdom of God here upon planet Earth and uh, not with, with the nation of Israel. And because of that, there were literally hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of thousands of Jews massacred as Christ killers all across Europe during the Middle Ages. And even one of the reformers, sad to say, the one in Germany who started the Reformation, Luther, at first he told his people, be kind to the Jewish people, go out of your way to help them and serve them because that's how we're gonna win them to Christ and it didn't happen that way. As a result, he became so bitter, he put into writing some of the most hateful vitriolic language against the Jews and say, destroy their synagogues, burn their houses, uh, abuse them as severely as you can. They're the scum of mankind, and the sooner they're taken away from planet Earth, the better off mankind will be. The Nazis, uh, leading up to World War II, quoted Luther's writings and statements to the people of Germany to tell them why we have to eliminate the Jews from planet Earth. And uh, so we deal with this, we deal with the history of that whole uh, false teaching that God has replaced Israel with the church. And we also uh, point out again the tragic consequences of that. But in the last four chapters of this book, we tell you what God's plan and purpose is for the people of Israel. Why did he raise up the nation of Israel? And what does he anticipate uh, will be his future dealings with with the nation of Israel? So these are dealing with things that are very practical today uh, within our churches, uh, within our churches. Now, yesterday in our last session, we began looking at this very significant prophecy in Daniel chapter 9, in Daniel chapter 9. And uh, it's, it's, we call it the 70 weeks prophecy, okay, because uh, we saw there that the angel Gabriel came to Daniel by direction of God to reveal to him God's prolonged future program for the nation of Israel uh, into the future. And uh, the new revelation of that is contained in chapter 9, verses 24 through 27. And we began yesterday noting there seven significant things that we have to note about this prophecy if we're going to understand what's being told here. And the first one we noted, verse 24, is that uh, there are 70 periods of time, but each one of those periods of time consists of seven years. 
of seven years. And we also noted there that this is exclusively God's program for Israel and their city of Jerusalem. Gabriel said that uh, to Daniel and everything. Seventy sevens, 70 periods of time, each one consists of seven years, have been determined for your people, Daniel, and for your holy city. This is exclusively God's program, prolonged program of the future for the nation of Israel, has nothing to do with the church at all. And keep that in mind. The second major thing we saw about it is the amount of time covered by this prophecy, as we've already indicated, 490 years. 70 periods of time, each one consists of seven years. So 70 times seven is 490 years. Then the third major thing to note about it was that all 490 years would be necessary to accomplish six things with the people of Israel and Jerusalem. All 490 years would be involved in accomplishing six significant things with the people of Israel and their city of Jerusalem. And we looked at those six, and that's where we left off yesterday morning. We come now to the fourth major thing, a very important one, for us to see about this prophecy, and that, that is the starting point of the 490 years. When historically did God begin ticking off the 490 years of this unique program for Israel? And uh, it's interesting that we're going to see it had to do with Israel uh, rebuilding after the, the Babylonian captivity, we noted the Medo-Persians conquered Babylon in 539 B.C. Very next year, King Cyrus of Medo-Persia, 538 B.C., issued a decree ending the Babylonian captivity of Jews, telling them to go back home and rebuild and, and all the rest. And God here is indicating that the starting point of the 490 years of this program would be the issuing of decree the issuing of a decree by some ruler to restore and rebuild Jerusalem, to restore and rebuild Jerusalem. But now there were many different aspects of restoring and rebuilding Jerusalem. And the interesting thing is, there were three different Medo-Persian decrees for the Jews to rebuild certain parts of the city of Jerusalem when they returned home from their Babylonian captivity. And the problem is, which one of, the decree, of those three Medo-Persian decrees is the one that is being dealt with here in Daniel chapter 9? And uh, there's a clue to it. Uh, because we're, we're told here, in fact, if you have your Bibles open, we're told here in verse 25, Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the commandment, to restore and to build Jerusalem unto the Messiah, the Prince, shall be seven periods of seven and threescore and two periods of seven. The street shall be built again and the wall even in troublous times, even in troublous times. Now, the Hebrew language in this indicates that whatever decree would give the people of Israel the right and command to build a defense wall around their new city that they are rebuilding. And of the three Medo-Persian decrees, there's only one of them that gave them permission and encouraged them to build a defense wall around their city. And thankfully, uh, the Old Testament in Nehemiah chapter 2, verses 1 through 8, tell us who the Medo-Persian king was, it was Artaxerxes, and it tells us the month and the year of that decree being issued. And that was the decree by Artaxerxes, and according to Nehemiah 2, verses 1 through 8, that was issued in March of 445 B.C. March of 445 B.C. by King Artaxerxes. So that, that tells us the starting point of the 490-year unique program God has designed for the people of Israel, uh, for the people of Israel. Now, so that's the starting point. 
The fifth major thing we have to see about this is the time when Messiah would be present in the nation of Israel. And the implication is, we'll see later on, officially presenting himself to the nation as their promised Messiah. Their promised Messiah. So the the fifth thing about this is the time when Messiah would be present in the nation of Israel here in his first coming and officially presenting himself to the nation of Israel as its uh, future prince, its its future ruler, uh, etc. Let me ask you a question. According to Zechariah 9.9, how were the people of Israel to know when their king uh, was coming to them? How were they to know the way he would officially present himself to the nation of Israel? Zechariah 9.9. He'll come riding into Jerusalem on the back of the foal of a donkey. On the back of the foal of a donkey. So this was indicating that uh, after a certain amount of time, Messiah would be present in Israel, and the way they would know it is that he would officially present himself to the nation by riding on the back of the foal of a donkey uh, through the gate of the wall around Jerusalem, uh, right in up up to the, the temple area and everything. His way of officially presenting himself to the nation of Israel as its Messiah, its coming prince, its future prince. Now, this started, uh, this started, the starting point of the 490 years was with Artaxerxes' decree. But then it indicated that it would be at the end of the first 483 years. It would be at the end of the first 483 years that Messiah would be present in Israel, officially present himself to the nation as the Messiah. So beginning with March of 445 B.C. with Artaxerxes' decree to build a defense wall around Jerusalem, you you count off the first 483 years, which would say this is when Messiah will be here, presenting himself as the Messiah uh, to the nation. Now the question is, what was the date of Messiah doing that? the date of Messiah doing that. And you might think, well, oh, that's very easy. All you do is you take a a march of 445 B.C. and you count off 483 years and you'll know exactly when this would be. But there's a problem from our perspective today because Israel and other ancient nations back in Bible times followed a different calendar system from what we follow today. They all followed a lunar calendar system, depending on the phases of the moon. And you know, the face of the moon is always 30 days. 30 days, 30 days, 30 days, 30 days, 30 days. And they realized, you know, that after so many years, their schedule would be out of sync with the solar system uh, here in the universe. So what they would do after so many years, they'd kick in an extra month and call it non-year, non-year. But we, from our understanding, have to look at it from a a solar calendar system according to our way of reckoning and nations later on, uh, everything, as to when it would be that he made that entrance according to our understanding. And uh, there was a, a Scotland Yard detective a number of years ago, uh, who was a, a committed Christian and a student of the Word of God. And he researched and researched and researched and researched on this. And he, he began to notice, because of the different calendar systems, in order for us to understand from the solar system of reckoning time when Jesus made that triumphal entry at everything and then was cut off with a violent death, we can't look at it of how many months and things like that, we have to figure out how many days uh, were involved between this time and the time that Messiah would enter into the world or make his presentation to Israel. And he came to the conclusion that you have to count off 173,880 days. One, 
173,880 days uh, from uh, the time that Artaxerxes issued this decree in March of 445 B.C. And after you count up all those days, that's the time when Messiah would be here officially presenting himself to the nation of Israel. And counting that up, that brings you to the spring of 32 A.D., the spring season of 32 A.D., that Jesus officially presented himself to the nation of Israel as Messiah through his triumphal entry into Jerusalem, riding on the back of the foal of a donkey in fulfillment of Zechariah chapter 9 and verse 9. Now, uh, and again, you might want to uh, look at Zechariah 9.9, but then there's another thing. What's interesting is this. New Testament chronology confirms this. It confirms this. Uh, the man, the Scotland Yard detective, when he added this all up, uh, ended, pointed out it came to the spring of 32 AD, at least that season of the year, when Jesus would do this. When you go to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 3, the Gospel of Luke, chapter 3, Luke, who did a lot of historical research, you know, when you look at chapter 1 of Luke, he says to his writers, I want to, I investigated everything carefully concerning Jesus Christ because I want everything to be absolutely accurate and not mythology and everything about him. And Luke tells us in, in Luke chapter 3 that John the Baptist began his ministry in Israel in the 15th year of Tiberius Caesar's reign of Tiberius Caesar's reign. He states that very clearly. In the 15th year of Tiberius Caesar's reign, obviously over the Roman Empire, this is when John the Baptist began his ministry. Well, according to uh, ancient Roman records, the first year of Tiberius Caesar's reign was 14 A.D. 14 A.D. That's the time he came to the throne as Caesar over the Roman Empire in 14 A.D. Now, when you take that as year one of his reign and you count up to his 15th year of his reign, that brings you to 28 A.D., 28 A.D. With, with uh, the year uh, 14 being the first year of his reign, you count, that's number one, you count up to 15, that brings you to 28 AD, that John the Baptist began his ministry. You know, baptizing people and telling people of Israel, repent, repent, you know, of your sins, because the kingdom of heaven uh, is at hand. God's future kingdom is at hand because the Messiah who can set it up is here if you'll meet the spiritual requirement of repentance of your rebellion against God. Now, obviously, John the Baptist already had a ministry going before he baptized Jesus, before he baptized Jesus. And if he began, and language, uh, New Testament scholars say some of the messages that John the Baptist presented were based on spring season of the year, agriculturally. And so they come to the conclusion that John began his ministry in the spring of of uh, this particular year, in the spring, and everything of this particular year. And, uh, and it would be in the spring of 28 A.D. that he began his ministry. Well, now that he'd been ministering, probably for several months, he must have had that ministry before he baptized Jesus. And there's a, there was a, a church bishop, Epiphanius, on the island of Cyprus, uh, around the maybe uh, early 300s A.D., that claimed that John the Baptist baptized Jesus in November of 28 A.D. That John the Baptist baptized Jesus in November of 28 A.D. And we know from the Gospel accounts, it's right after John baptized Jesus that Jesus began his ministry 
Uh, you can take the, follow that like in, in Matthew and the other Gospels. Right after John baptized him, apparently in November 28 AD, Jesus began his ministry. Now, we also know from the Gospels that Jesus, uh, once he began his ministry, was here for four Passovers. For four Passovers. And of course, the Passover was always in the spring. Was always in the spring. Okay, so John baptized Jesus in the fall of 28 AD. The first Passover of Jesus' ministry would have been in the spring of 29. The second Passover, the spring of 30. The third Passover, the spring of 31. And the fourth Passover of Jesus' ministry would be in the spring of 32 AD. Of 32 AD. And... uh, And then what the Bible indicates here then, that was in the spring of 32 AD that Jesus made his triumphal entry into Jerusalem and officially presented himself uh, to the people of Israel as its promised Messiah, as as its promised Messiah. And, And you know, when you read the Gospels, Jesus had been ministering for an extended period of time, actually for about three years plus several more months, according to the Gospels. He had been doing that ministry before he made his triumphal entry into Jerusalem. Because, you know, he made his triumphal entry less than a week before he was cut off with a violent death, cut off with a violent death through crucifixion. Interestingly, Epiphanius, the uh, church leader and everything, who said that John the Baptist baptized Jesus in November 28 A.D., He went on to indicate, Epiphanius said, that Christ died in the spring of 32 A.D., around the Passover time in the spring of 32 A.D., which is exactly what Daniel 9 was indicating here, that beginning with the decree, a Medo-Persian decree, to build the defense wall around Jerusalem, and you count off the first 483 years that's when Messiah would be here presenting himself to Israel as its, as its king. But then the Hebrew text of Daniel 9 says, and then Messiah would be cut off with a violent death, is what the Hebrew text says. After he makes his, his uh, triumphal entry in Jerusalem in the spring of 32 AD, he'll be cut off with a violent death. That's exactly what the Hebrew says. In, in the Hebrew text of Daniel chapter 9. And that's exactly what happened. Less than a week after Jesus made his triumphal entry in Jerusalem, officially presented himself to the nation as its, its uh, Messiah, its prince, its future king, and everything else, Jesus was crucified. He was crucified. And so the, the New Testament chronology agrees with the Old Testament chronology here of Daniel chapter 9. And so that it was in the spring of 32 AD that Jesus made his triumphal entry and then he was cut off with a violent death. And so the fifth thing we're seeing here is the time when Messiah would be present and uh, starting with Artaxerxes' decree in March 445 BC counting off 173,880 days it takes you right to the spring of 32 AD when Jesus made his triumphal entry and then was cut off with a violent death, violent death. Now, the sixth major thing we have to see, and we've already stated this, is that Messiah would be cut off with a violent death. And that's what the Hebrew text uh, clearly says about him. That Messiah, and what it literally says too, the Hebrew says, and Messiah will have nothing. He'll have nothing. The implication is he won't have what he deserved to have from the people of Israel. As their Messiah, their future king, he deserved to have a gold crown on his head as king. Instead, he was given a crown of thorns, a crown of thorns, symbol of rejection. You are not our king. You're not our Messiah. As the Messiah, he should have been given a royal throne. 
to sit upon. They gave him a cross to be crucified upon. And as the Messiah, he should have been given royal robes to wear. They stripped him of his clothing. They stripped him of his clothing. And they scourged him till his back was bleeding. They beat at his face. You know, Isaiah chapter, uh, Isaiah chapter, uh, right before chapter 32, at everything, says that his face would be beaten so severely it wouldn't even resemble a human face anymore, uh, anymore whatsoever. And so that he, he wasn't given what he deserved to be given by his people of Israel. And that's what the Hebrew language is saying here in this 70 weeks prophecy of, of Daniel ch- chapter 9 about him. So he'd be cut off with a violent death. Now, what's interesting to note is that Jerusalem and the temple, we're told, would be destroyed in the future by a certain people after the first 483 years. That after the first 483 years, Jerusalem and the temple that they rebuilt after they returned home from their Babylonian captivity would be destroyed by a certain people after the first 483 years of the prophecy would be completed. That's in verse 26. Now, what's interesting is this. That prophecy was fulfilled, but not immediately after Messiah was cut off with a violent death. That part of the prophecy of Daniel 9 was fulfilled in 70 A.D., 70 A.D., several decades after Jesus was crucified uh, on the cross of Calvary. But it's foretold here that Jerusalem and the temple would be destroyed by a certain group of people after the first 483 years of this prophecy would be completed, verse 26. And it's a fact of history that Jerusalem was besieged by the Romans beginning in the mid-60s A.D., and was finally leveled to the ground together with the temple in 70 A.D., in 70 A.D. Now notice, that means that God, after the first 483 years of this prophecy had been fulfilled with Messiah being cut off, that God interrupted this unique program for Israel with a gap of time. The last seven years, as we're going to see here in verse 29, are the seven-year tribulation period of the future, which indicates that God interrupted this unique program for Israel at the end of the first 483 years when Jesus was rejected and crucified and rose from the dead. He interrupted that. If, if he had allowed the last seven years to begin as soon as Jesus was cut off, then Jerusalem would have been destroyed 39 A.D., because he was cut off in 32 A.D., and so if God had taken the last seven years right immediately after Jesus' triumphal entry and crucifixion, Jerusalem would have been destroyed in 39 A.D., and it wasn't. This indicates that God has temporarily interrupted this unique program for Israel of 490 years, and he interrupted it after Jesus was rejected and crucified and rose from the dead and ascended to heaven. And that last seven years has not started yet. And we're going to see why here with some other revelation from the Word of God uh, to the effect. And what will begin that last seven years. That means we are living right now in the gap of time of this unique program that God has revealed here for the people of Israel. Now let me just go off on a little bit of a tangent here. What did God bring into existence after Jesus was crucified, rose from the dead, and ascended to heaven? The church. The church. Just a a brief period of time after Jesus ascended to heaven. Acts chapter 2. The band of believers who had believed that Jesus was their Messiah were banded together in Jerusalem praying And all of a sudden, there's a sound of a mighty rushing wind that comes down upon them. And tongues of fire coming down from heaven 
one tongue for each believer who was there. And as those tongues uh, descended from heaven down to their heads, in the downward movement, the implication is those tongues disappeared right into their bodies. What were those tongues of fire? The Shekinah glory of God. Remember the burning bush to Moses? Remember the fire on top of Mount Sinai when God called Moses to the top of the mountain to enter into a covenant relationship, the Mosaic covenant relationship with the nation of Israel? Remember the pillar of fire that led them across the Red Sea and led them through 40 years of their wilderness wandering? Remember when they erected the tabernacle in the wilderness, that portable worship structure of the day of dedication? What came down into that tabernacle? Fire came down into that tabernacle and, and stayed there. Remember centuries later when Solomon and the people of Israel dedicated the first temple that were built there for the worship of God, fire came down into that structure. The Shekinah glory always signified unique presence of deity, unique presence of deity. Those tongues of fire coming down from heaven, one for each believer in the Lord Jesus that was there, were signifying that a person of the Godhead was now coming to indwell the bodies of these believers. Remember what Jesus said on the day of his ascension, you stay in Jerusalem until the promise that God has given is going to come to you, going to come to you. Think of the implications of that. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, there's a genuine sense in which you have the Shekinah glory of God dwelling inside your body in the person of the Holy Spirit in the person of the Holy Spirit. This is why Paul, when he wrote to the Corinthians, what, know you not that you're not your own, you know, you've been bought with a price, etc. And he says to them, don't you understand your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who dwells in you, and you're not your own. You've been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body with what you do, what you say. The glory of God, the glory of God, the Shekinah glory of God, it ought to make a difference in you and me, in how we live, how we conduct our lives every day. But this was a whole new thing now that God was bringing into existence. While Israel's out of joint with God, from having rejected their Messiah to having him crucified. God isn't done with them yet. They still have seven years yet to go in this unique program for Israel, beyond the time we're living right now. But in the, in the meantime, he brings a new body into existence upon planet Earth called the church, called the church. Now, this has some other implications concerning the timing of the rapture. Because, uh, notice, God waited until he interrupted this program with Israel to bring the church into existence. He didn't bring the church into existence during the first 483 years of this uh, program for Israel. He waited until he interrupted this unique program with Israel to bring the church into existence. So that it implies before he picks up the last seven years of this unique program for Israel, he's going to remove the church from the earth by rapture, a pre-tribulation rapture of the church, before he picks up the last seven years of this unique program he designed exclusively for the nation of Israel and the city of Jerusalem. This is one of seven implications in the Bible that the church will be raptured out of the world before the seven-year tribulation period, because those seven years are God's unique program for Israel and Jerusalem. What's going to happen to them and not for the church and not for the church? So this prophecy has a lot of implications, a lot of implications that uh, even relate to some things from, from the New Testament. Now, the eighth thing we see here then, we've been talking about, is the 70th period of seven years. The 70th period of seven years, the last period of seven years of this program for Israel 
did not begin immediately after the end of the first 483 years. And there's a gap of time during which Christ died and Jerusalem destroyed uh, in 70 AD, and we're living in that gap of time right now as the bride of Christ, the church, the bride of Christ, the church. And the ninth significant thing about this prophecy is in verse 27. Verse 27. At the end of verse 26, it talked about that the people who would destroy Jerusalem in 70 AD would have a coming prince. They would have a coming prince. And it it says here, uh, verse 26, after three score and and two uh, periods of, of seven years, Messiah will be cut off, but not for himself, the people of the, of the prince, the people of the prince that shall come. There's going to be a future prince coming, not Messiah here. But the people of the prince that shall come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. That's Rome in 70 A.D., destroying the city and the sanctuary, the temple. And the end thereof shall be with a flood. Unto the end of the war, desolations are determined. And he, the he goes back to this coming prince who belonged to the Romans, the Romans who would destroy Jerusalem in 70 AD, they were going to have a coming prince, a coming prince, a coming Roman prince. And what's he going to do? Verse 27, he shall confirm the covenant with many for one week, one seven-year period. Again, here's the word week again, but the Hebrew, one seven, seven-year period. This is the last seven years of this unique program for Israel. And what they're saying is that in the future, there's going to be a Roman ruler, a ruler of a revived Roman Empire that we already noted from uh, Daniel chapter 7, revived Roman Empire. Remember the little horn, the 11th horn, overthrows three of the original 10 rulers of the revived Roman Empire, and uh, he gains a control of things, and he's a blasphemer of God, and he's going to turn against uh, people uh, the saints of God and wage war against them and all the rest. That's this future Roman prince, and we're going to see another passage this morning about him in chapter 11. It's the Antichrist. He's the Antichrist. And so what God is saying here is that uh, what the Antichrist is going to do, and this is going to be the starting point of the last seven years of this program for Israel, Antichrist is going to establish a seven-year covenant with the nation of Israel. That's what starts the seven-year tribulation period. Antichrist, the ruler of this revived Roman Empire, when he comes to power, he's going to establish a seven-year covenant with the nation of Israel. Hebrew language scholars say the language here is very strong. It implies that this is going to be a strong binding seven-year covenant between Antichrist, the head of the future revived Roman Empire, on the one hand, and the nation of Israel on the other hand. A strong binding covenant. And through that seven-year covenant, he will guarantee Israel's security. He's going to ally himself with Israel. Through that covenant... He's going to strongly ally himself with Israel that he's going to regard Israel as an extension of himself and his empire in the Middle East. And so the the Hebrew scholars say it's, it's so strong the language, it may imply he may enforce this seven year covenant upon the nation of Israel. Apparently, he wants influence in the Middle East with his revived Roman Empire, which implies. When he does that, he's not in the Middle East yet. But we're going to see later on this morning, he's going to get in there uh, later on, according to Daniel chapter 11. Daniel chapter 11. So he's going to give almost an ironclad covenant commitment to Israel. If you are attacked by any other nations, I will come and protect you. And I will deal with your enemies. They're going to come after you. Now, some of the Hebrew scholars say the language here is so strong, it may imply that he will enforce this seven-year covenant upon Israel. Either way, whether he's enforcing it or it isn't, he's going to so strongly bind Israel to himself and his revived Roman Empire that he will regard 
Israel as an extension of himself and the Roman Empire in the Middle East, and therefore he will regard any attack against Israel as an attack against him, his revived Roman Empire, and that will give him excuse now to invade the Middle East, you know, and, and start taking control of things in that particular area. Now, that starts the seven-year tribulation period, that binding covenant between the Antichrist, the head of the revived Roman Empire on the one hand, and the nation of Israel in the Middle East on the other hand. But then it goes on to say that in the middle of the week, he shall cause the sacrifice and the oblation to cease. Now that implies several things. That means that at least by the middle of the seven-year tribulation period, Israel will have a temple again. And they will have reinstituted their, their priesthood, and they will have reinstituted their sacrificial system at that temple. But what Daniel is being told here, in the middle of that seven-year period, after the first three and a half years of it, Antichrist is going to come to Jerusalem. He's going to take possession of that temple. He's going to put a stop to sacrifices and offerings there. Why is he doing that? Well, Paul, in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, gives pretty clear indication of why. Where Paul indicates that in the middle of the tribulation period, Antichrist, that Paul calls the man of sin, literally the man of lawlessness, is going to take his seat in the temple of God and make the blasphemous claim that he is God. Jesus, in Matthew 24, in his Olivet Discourse, verse 15, he's speaking to the people of Israel of that future tribulation period. He says to them, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet, that's Daniel uh, chapter 9 here, that the abomination of desolation is a man taking his seat in God's temple and making the, the blasphemous claim that he is God. Paul is saying to the Jews, or Jesus was saying to the Jews of that future time, when you see that abomination of desolation in your holy place, say in your holy place, those of you who are Judah, flee to a mountain area, wilderness area as fast as you can. Because then it will be such a great tribulation, such as never been in all of past history, ever will be again. Now, Jesus, in Matthew 24, divides the seven-year tribulation period into two divisions. The first half of it he calls the beginning of birth pangs. The beginning of birth pangs. And he's using the analogy of a woman when she's about to deliver a new human life into the world. She has a whole series of birth pangs. And the, the beginning ones, they're no picnic but they're rather mild compared to the hard labor birth pangs. And Jesus is dividing the tribulation period into two divisions. The first half are the beginning of birth pangs. But then the second half are the hard labor birth pangs. And so the first half, there will be tribulation. But the second half, once Antichrist takes his seat in their temple and claims he's God, that's going to be the hard labor birth pangs because we're told here in verse 27 of Daniel 9 that he will turn against Israel during this last seven years and he will desolate the nation of Israel during the second half of the seven-year tribulation period, the second half of it. Revelation 13 has implications on this. Revelation 13 indicates that in the middle of the seven-year period, Satan is going to take possession of the Antichrist. And as he takes possession of the Antichrist, he is going to use Antichrist as a tool to try to annihilate the nation of Israel from planet Earth. And he's also going to use uh, Antichrist as a tool to try to destroy all the people who get saved during the tribulation, where he wages war against the saints. Remember we saw in Daniel 7. Once he becomes the controlling king of the revived Roman Empire, 
He desolates, he, he wages war against the saints, the saved people, for three and a half years, the second half. And Revelation 13 indicates when Satan takes possession of him in the middle of the seven-year period of time, that he will, when he takes possession of him, he will give Antichrist power to continue for another 42 months. 12 months in a year, 12 into 42, three and a half years, three and a half years. And that's why in the middle of the tribulation period, Antichrist radically changes from that of being the defender of Israel, protector of Israel, to now being the arch enemy of Israel. And so we're told here that uh, he's going to, he shall make it desolate. The abomination, the overspread of abomination is going to make things desolate. He's going to go after Israel and desolate it throughout the second half of the seven-year tribulation period. So these have tremendous implications, again, of what's going to happen in the future. And as we're going to see uh, in some of our other things this morning, we're going to see that it almost looks now, when you read and hear about the news, the nations that are in the news now, they're almost the same nations that are foretold in the Bible they are going to play a role in that future tribulation period. Egypt, Syria, Libya, Sudan, Turkey, all these other nations and everything. Is God beginning to set the stage for what these future events are foretelling for us through these prophetic scriptures, these prophetic scriptures? Uh, when you come to chapter uh, 10, Daniel was fasting for three weeks. He's struggling. You know, what's the meaning of all these prophecies? What's going to happen to the people of Israel during all this time? And there's a magnificent heavenly being that comes to him to give him more information. But interestingly, when that heavenly being gets to Daniel, he said, Daniel, I started out to come to you when you were re requesting praying to God, what's all this about? But I was detained for 21 days, for three weeks, by the prince of Persia, by the prince of Persia. Now, the prince of Persia is an evil angel, evil angel. You know, uh, the scriptures, the New Testament, talks about that Satan has taken angels and put them into different levels of authority. And some of them are called principalities or princes and powers, etc. The prince of Persia here is an exalted evil angel that Satan has assigned uh, to Persia when it was a power there in the world and everything to uh, do Satan's work. And this heavenly being said to Daniel, the only other one who came to help me in waging this war against the prince of Persia in order for me to get to you with the future revelation God wants you to know about the people of Israel, the only one that came to help me in this was Michael, your prince, your prince. Michael the archangel, and the scriptures reveal he is an exalted holy angel that God assigns specifically to the nation of Israel. And what this is indicating is there is spiritual war going on within the universe that's totally invisible to you and me as human beings, mortal human beings, where God has holy angels working with leaders and everything of nations to influence them to do things the way God intends. But Satan has powerful evil angels who are working upon rulers of nations and everything else to make things go the way Satan wants things to go. Again, this is indicating some interesting things. We can't see it. We can see the results of it. But there's a spiritual war going on over what nations do, what their leaders decide to do, and all, and all the rest. And uh, this angel gave to Daniel, or this uh, exalted spiritual being, probably an angel, some say it may have been the pre-incarnate Christ and everything, 
but I doubt that pre-incarnate Christ would allow an evil angel to detain him and his wanting to get uh, to Daniel. But uh, it indicates here that there's a spiritual war going on behind the scenes in, in world history. And uh, he came to deliver the final revelation that completes the book of Daniel to Daniel. We're going to look at that final revelation and everything, a good part of it later on this morning. And, uh, but then he said that once I'm done fighting with the prince of Persia, then I'm going to have to go and fight with the prince of Greece. You know, the evil angel that Satan applies to the next great Gentile world power, Greece, when it's here upon planet Earth. And so what's intriguing is, you know, when we turn on the television and watch things going on in the world and uh, nations, why they're doing what they're doing, we're just seeing what's visible to us as human beings here upon planet Earth, but we're totally blinded to the spiritual war that's going on in the spirit realm over the decisions that nations are making and that rulers of nations leaders of nations are making. It's all part of this continuing warfare between God and Satan throughout the course of world history. But this particular revelation here in Daniel 9 is incredible. It's the only one that told the exact time when the Messiah would be here in Israel, officially presenting himself to the nation as its future king, its future Messiah. And what would happen? It gave a precise chronology as to when he would make his triumphal entry into Jerusalem and then be cut off with a violent death. Incredible, incredible revelation in this particular Daniel 9 prophecy that was given to Daniel. And you and I are living in the gap of time between the end of the first 483 years of this unique program for Israel and Jerusalem and before the last seven years of this unique program that God has ordained for Israel, the people of Israel and Jerusalem to take place. But that will begin when Antichrist, the head of this future revived Roman Empire, makes a strong binding covenant for seven years with the nation of Israel, the nation of Israel. Okay, we're going to take our break at this time, and we'll pick up and look at uh, a little bit of uh, chapter 11, but then spend a good amount of time on chapter 11 of very significant things.